0: Welcome to Trading for Keeps. I'm Brian and this is Michael and today we have a, ca- a guest Carl Munt. and I'll let Carl introduce himself and give some background.
1: Very good. Hi everybody. I'm Carl Munt. I'm a certified financial planner and I'm owner of Trail Ridge Financial uh, here in Raleigh, North Carolina.
2: All right. Excellent. Well, welcome Carl. We're really excited to have you. Um, as you know, we kind of, well me personally, I'm a, a, a day trade. Um, I buy first thing in the morning usually try to catch some morning momentum on some garbage penny stock company and sell by noon. So I understand that as a certified financial planner, not certified, that's something significant. Can you talk a little bit about what a certified financial planner actually is as compared to me who gets up in the morning and day trades?
1: Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, a certified financial planner is a professional designation uh, that's uh, given out um, by the um, college for financial planning, the CFP board. Um, it requires three years of industry experience. Uh, there's extensive education that you have to go through. Um, I forget the total number of hours, uh, but it was a lot. My assistant actually just finished hers and it uh, took me took me down memory lane uh, in terms of the total uh, studying and exams. And then there's a cumulative comprehensive exam you have to take to pass. Um, and then it requires ongoing continuing education also has um, requirements in terms of acting in best interest, acting as a fiduciary uh, on behalf of clients and, and really working and providing financial advice uh, for people in all aspects of things. So not just being a stockbroker trading, but also providing, uh, you know, providing guidelines and standards for the advice that people give. So it is uh, one of the highest, if not the highest uh, designations
2: that you, you can earn. Um, so it sounds like you're almost a, an engineer.
1: In some respects, yeah. Actually, a lot of people in this industry are engineers or come from engineering backgrounds. Um, uh, yeah, it, and for me, it's a great place to be because I have that analytic mindset. Uh, I love crunching numbers. I can pull out a spreadsheet and uh, get down in, into the nitty-gritty. Uh, but I also really love talking to people. I love helping people. I love making a difference. Uh, so it's a great place for me to be in terms of uh, uh, the best of both worlds from a, a career perspective to analyze, yet to
0: be able to help people face with what's going on. So, so Carl, just out of curiosity, how did you decide to choose this as a career path? Is this something you kind of always wanted to do, or did it just kind of happenstance? Or, and then you kind of, yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
2: I, I,
1: I walked into it, um, you know, I mean, I, but at the same time, I was also the kid who asked his dad for a subscription to the Wall Street Journal when he was 12 years old. Oh, awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. Um, you know, I did economics classes in high school. I was in a stock trading club in high school. So I always, and then I did econ and uh, international political economy stuff in college. So I was always kind of engaged in it. Um, but after I finished up my MBA, which was in 2004, at the tail end of the 2002 recession, I was trying to find a job and ended up, you know, uh, meeting with a recruiter for a financial services firm, uh, and kind of walked into it and was like, I I always wanted to start my own business. And, uh, so it wasn't something I, you know, I thought I was going to work in research triangle park and, you know, have a salary job and and do that whole bit. But when I kind of walked into it, it was one of those things that instantaneously felt like a good fit.
2: Awesome. So what, so it was, just, it was always an interest for you. Um, the, you mentioned the 2002 recession. So that was the dot-com bubble that ended up bursting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was, so you were in school at that time? Were you active in the market at all at that point? Can you get, give us a little <laughs> bit of background there, if you don't mind? Uh,
1: you know, so I had a few, uh, back then, you know, I had a, my dad gave me a Charles Schwab uh, account when I you know, was in college, it had 50 shares of a utility company that, you know, I held and I bought some things in, in the 90s, but really, no, I wasn't actively uh, trading. I think at that point in time, got married, bought a house and went to grad school. So I think I actually had cleared out uh, my investment accounts in terms of everything I had made. I had sold them for down payments or, you know, other things like that at that point in time. So uh was pretty much coming into it, uh, you know, and then 401k, you know, that was out there. Um, but um,
0: yeah. Yeah. I'm super curious. So you started Trail Ridge like on your own. Like I mean, that's kind of a lot of people. It's kind of scary to go out on their own and start a business like that. Like do, like you know, can you talk me through that process? Did you have clients lined up, or is this just you're gonna take a bet on this? You know, did it take a while for it to build your clientele? Like how did it how did it grow, and you know, how did you make it make it work?
1: Well, so uh, Trail Ridge was formed uh, in 2018. Um, I've been in practice and been practicing as a financial advisor for over 15 years now. Uh Uh, So I began in 2004 um, with that. So before I know it, it will be 16 years Um, in doing that. So I worked with uh, my previous firm for, uh, um, you know, the entire duration of that time period. And they had a business model set up where I was a franchisee um, in terms of how uh, things were set up. And so um, I was already kind of out working on my own, being a little bit more independent, Uh, And so really moving to Trailbridge Financial, becoming more independent and changing the broker-dealers and the uh, custodian and clearinghouse by which, um, you know, you get your technology support, your compliance oversight, your trading support and all those different things. Um, You know, it was uh, just kind of really at that point, it was a process of changing affiliation. Um, And it was done in such a way that, you know, as I said, I had more independence and could really focus on sort of. The clients that I wanted to work with in terms of being focused on lifestyle and people who want to live independently and kind of live creatively as opposed to just, you know, I mean, we all have to kind of do the deal so to speak in terms of working and, you know, punching the clock and, and making money. But at some point, ultimately, you know, we only get one shot at, you know, this life that we're living. So making sure that the things that we're doing being used so that we can maximize those
2: opportunities. So what what type of clients do you work with? You said you you want to work with certain types of clients. Can you be fairly selective in your industry? Because I know some of the, the, you know, I've worked in restaurants, and I'll I'll sell anybody that walks in the door with a dollar, you know? So how 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 does that work? Obviously, it's a very different industry, but how do you go about finding clients? Can you go into that at all? Yeah, so
1: I'm, uh, you know, I work with uh, clients. When I work with people, I'm looking for relationships. Um, that ideally are going to be long-term, you know, lifetime relationships. I have clients I've worked with for over all 15 years of my, um, you know, entire career. So I think one of the most important things, and this is for anybody, you know, if they're looking at working with someone, uh, certainly their uh, professionalism, their expertise. uh, But one of the things you have to ask yourself, is this somebody I can work with? Not, you know, there is a certain aspect of well, you're the most available person here to me to do this work for me. But ultimately, it's really in its best form is, a, is a, not a transactional relationship. It is you know, kind of a, a relationship oriented. So um, I just say uh, the clients that I work best with, uh, and they work in all industries, and from school teachers to execs to business owners, Uh, you name it. Um, But one kind of characteristic that they have that ties them together is they're really focused on doing something different. Um, It's not just about saving into a 401k or doing something like that. They all have something that they're trying to accomplish. Um, So uh, so for me, it's that kind of creative personalization, customization, uh, working with people that makes the biggest difference.
0: And just oh. out of curiosity, how do they how do they typically find you? Like, you know, do they are they searching you? Or are they is it through friends and networks, or are you finding them? Or,
1: uh, well, I, I come on great podcasts like this. Oh,
0: of course. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, no, this is actually my this is my podcast debut. So, um, all right, uh, welcome. very uh, <laughs> It's awesome. Uh, you know, generally right now, the majority of uh, my um, clients that I'm getting are, are introduced to me through referral um and through natural market uh you know you take care of people you do good work for people um they're going to talk about you and they're they're going to advertise for you um i do do seminars or other things like that um you know educational pieces but i don't you know have a broad net in terms of you know advertising uh, that i'm looking looking for typically you know we're bringing on five to ten clients a year um not that we're being overly selective, but, you know, we focus on the work that we do. We're not a marketing firm, you know, so our, our you know, we need, need, and I want, you know, uh, new clients and have new relationships because that's, you know, anytime you make uh, new relationships, you know, that's always a positive thing. Um, uh, but really the focus is also on the work and making sure that we're balanced in terms of, you know, delivering the work and not just, you know, we're not trying to provide a, a one size fits all solution that, you know, it's not like a pair of shoes that yeah. you, you sell and, you know, run run the same uh, pair of shoes every day.
2: My experience with a financial advisor was I had an IRA set up at a small employer. And yep. it was it, when I actually called him up after leaving that employer, because first they charged me $40 just to have an account, $40 a year to have an account. And it was just sitting in there, you know, and I call him up and kind of say, okay, how do you know, what if I want to do a little bit more with my life? And it sounds like I should have been talking to you actually, because I had aspirations of, uh, of owning a business and not working for somebody else. But he was like, no, we just need to look at like, what do you want to do in retirement? He goes, you know, we can estimate what it will cost for you to go to the Caribbean twice a year and then we'll figure out how to make it. So you can, you know, put food on the table and go to the Caribbean twice a year and, you know, 40 years when you retire. And I'm just like, that's, I I go. I want to do other things. I want to do things before I retire. He almost. He really wanted to put me in a cookie cutter Mm -hmm. portfolio type of thing and then charge me forty dollars a year for it. Yeah. (laughs) So how do how do you vary what what types of uh? So if if I came to you like that, you know, I have all of twenty five thirty grand, you know, in my IRA. Maybe I've got a couple thousand dollars saved up, and I want to I want to start working towards owning a business or or something like that. How how would you, what would you do for me, I guess, at that point, since uh, I don't want you to have to, you know, yeah. So confidentiality. Uh,
1: no, no. So what I do and, and what I think one of the things that distinguishes me is I'm a fee-based financial planner. So kind of one of the core aspects of the relationships that I have is I charge a fee on an annual basis to provide a financial plan um, and to outline, uh, you know, give a, a, a straight assessment of where you stand currently. Uh, to look at your long-term goals, uh, to identify how to get there. Maybe it's two trips to the Caribbean. Whatever, <laughs> uh, you know. Whatever the case may be, but you know, really kind of start to begin to plan out. Um, and as a as a financial planner, uh, and the fee that I charge to do that well and to provide fiduciary uh, advice, you know, the fees that I charge are magnitudes larger than you know an account fee for forty dollars because that that forty dollar account fee Um, and we have some account fees and most firms have some degree of account fee. That account fee just covers the maintenance expenses of managing it and reporting it and doing all the oversight of the actual individual account that doesn't pay for any actual, any actual advice in in the work that you do. So, um, you know, what distinguishes me and the work that I do is sort of kind of that, um, individual work about what you do and then the other part about working with someone when you're paying them to do a financial plan um, is you're creating an economic relationship that's mutually beneficial for both people Um, because the best thing for you to do may be to buy zero products you know or to invest anything more or the best thing to do maybe just to put more money in your workplace 401k Um, and looking at kind of the overall spectrum of everything that's on there so the relationship I have with my clients is to provide them the advice that they need to help them realize their goals, whether or not they have that money invested with me or not. Now, candidly, I would love for them to have their money invested with me because my because that's a another level of client, right? I can have a client that does planning, I have a client that does investing, but I can do the best work if you're doing the planning and investing and making sure both both sides are talking to each other um, to get the best. Synthesis, and uh, you know, and that is just going to get more efficiency in how everything's
0: done. Carl, can I interrupt you for a second? You mentioned the word fiduciary, and I, you know, I hear that word thrown around, and I remember there was some legislation about you know being a fiduciary a while back, and there's some hubbub about that. Can you can you explain just in like common layman terms what, what does it mean to be a fiduciary, and what's what's, what's the what's the big deal about that?
1: Uh, well, in, uh, in in layman terms, of, you know fiduciary says is that you have to act in the best interest of your client. Um, and that you know that you have to put their needs ahead of your own. Um, it seems like common sense, but (laughs) but uh that that has not been the standards that have been put on the brokerage industry as a whole. Um, the, the standard previously that was set up in the brokerage industry was a suitability standard, which is basically and that's where we get all everybody's familiar with the risk tolerance questions. You know, you run through the risk tolerance and you come out and it says you're moderately conservative. Um, If you're under a suitability standard, your obligation is only to show them people and say, all right, here's all of your moderately conservative options. Um, It's not to go in and say, hey, this is the best product out of this suite, or I might even show you a product uh, um, from that suite of moderately conservative options. Um, But I'm not obligated to show you the best one. I can show you the one that benefits me the most. Um, And that's where I think, unfortunately, a lot of the distrust um, has been created in the financial services industry and in different relationships. And so uh, the fiduciary rule that uh, did come out or was attempted to come out uh, was an effort to address that. Um, That got repealed uh, in 2016, 2017. Um, So that's no longer in place. And now the SEC just recently actually here in June has been rolling out what's called the best interest which is a modified version of that fiduciary rule, but it lessens some of the requirements for the different broker dealers. Um, but again, outlines a little bit more specifically some of the disclosure um, that's out there and uh, articulates the way uh, firms and individuals do or don't work in the best interest. of the
2: Okay. That makes sense. I want to pivot just a little bit now. Um, everyone how we've actually met we actually don't know each other through financial services and everything else we know each other from the local running community um, i know me and brian have talked about that in the past and brian and carl have actually run together so i do want to pivot because i think i think running is such an individual sport you have to continue especially ultra running which we do an ultra an ultra run an ultra marathon is anything greater than a marathon so for everyone out there that thinks a marathon is ridiculous we run a marathon and then keep running um but part of part of running a uh, an ultra marathon at least for me maybe you guys can speak to this a little bit i always at some point during that run hate myself and regret ever signing up for it question everything about my life what got me to this exact point in this exact moment because everything just sucks um and i i've kind of taken that you know even in my trading i know that sometimes one of the biggest biggest hangups a lot of new traders have is you're going to lose sometimes and that it sucks right it just sucks that you're going to lose um so i guess can you concentrate more on the running right now carl can you give us a background on your running career and then maybe tie that back into uh your how you use running and financial planning together yeah uh
1: so i uh have been running pretty consistently for about nine years um kind of you, you might learn this after your uh, uh, birth of your new kid, uh, um, but uh, you spend a lot more time on the ground. You're staring at this little <laughs> fascinating human being. And so for me, the process of having a kid was kind of a process of the, the waistline expanding. Uh, so by the time the, the second one came around, I got committed to getting back in shape and I started running. I had run in high school, um, ran my first marathon within a year, and since about uh, 2014, 2015, I've been running ultramarathons, predominantly 50 miles
2: and 100-mile races. 100-milers, plural. How many 100-milers yeah. have you run?
1: Uh, I've completed three. Wow. I've, I've uh, been in four, and I'm have got a. I'm training for one in September in Georgia if it actually uh, happens. We'll see, you know, with uh, what coronavirus is uh rolling out these days there's always a question mark whether it's actually going to happen but that's what i'm training for right now
0: out of curiosity which three uh or which which four have you run out of and then is there a dream race that you have like you know in your mind in the future at some point yeah so my first race
1: i ran actually in england is a race called north downs way um which is just a point to point uh Run on uh, which is a national trail. It's uh, the North Downs Way Trail. It's called, I think, the Pilgrims Trail as well, but it's a trail that's been around over 1100 years. Um, So um, that was great. I just went out there, um, really didn't know anybody out there. I just kind of took my bag, checked in, uh, gave the race director my suitcase, ran 100 miles across the English countryside, uh, picked up my suitcase on the other end of the trip uh to do that so that was a good one um and then i've completed a, a race in ohio called the mohican 100 uh, a couple of times um i did enter umstead 100 a few years ago and i had to dnf after 87 miles um and then having an injury that cropped up so i just kind of uh, at, at that point i could have crawled i had enough time i could have crawled for the final 13 <laughs> miles but uh it was it just kind of called it a day i'd actually had a really good day up until that point
2: um so i was i was happy
1: uh with kind of the overall performance
2: doing that so, 87 that's a long way to go That's a long way it's not finished i'm so 20, sorry 21 that.
1: hours yeah it was pretty pretty epic it was a day it, i ran 20 hours in rain in temperatures in the mid 40s or low or cold so i, I
0: think i was just, at- I was out there that day at that Umstead 100. That's my only 100. It, t- it took me 26 hours to, to. Oh, did you finish that, that day? Yeah. And that one had like a less than 50%. I think around 50%. Yeah. rate. Well, congrats was, to you. You're a
1: better man than me for that. Oh, I did
0: not. I, well, I had never done a 100 before. and I, I told everybody I was going to do it. So I didn't want to. I, I was not going to crawl. It was the, it was the, uh, you know, I could feel the yeah. pressure. That's great. I did a 40 miler in November. Now I feel weak. <laughs> they're, they're all painful. It does. You know, if you're running a five k, if you're doing it full blast, like I have respect. I have respect yeah. for everybody who runs and does any kind of physical activity. That's
2: very um, true. Um. So back to, I guess. Sorry. So you've run these. What What have you taken from running these these ultra marathons? It's a, it's, that's, a, it's that's an, an event, eternal right? that's an eternal question, it is, right? Right. Like, give, why give why you do you do these so weird? Yes. Why do you do something things. so weird and bizarre? I do it myself, so I have a, va- a vague understanding of why my twisted mind leads me to do it. But what 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 takes what brings you to uh, to do these runs? You know, for me, I think what
1: um, you know is one is this, you know I think it's uh, tapping into your own human potential. I think is a, is a huge motivator in terms of like um, you know. it's curious to think about what limitations are put on our brains and what limitations that we've sort of succumbed to without even really thinking about why they're there. I mean, and and you talk about this, like automobiles have only been in mass adoption for a little more than a hundred years, right? So somehow in a hundred years, it now seems ridiculous that somebody would walk a mile to go get to a grocery store or something like that, you know, like, so like we, we kind of become victims of our environments around us. So there is that component of, um, uh, you know, just tapping into what's available. And then also too, I mean, you know, I love the mountains, love the outdoors. Um, and I think it's pretty cool to not just go a few miles in on a trail and to run 50 miles across a national park or, or in the mountains and get to see all of that and do that in the course of one day and have a great day. And, have a beer afterwards and, and relax. There's definitely something uh, invigorating.
0: So, so out of curiosity, when you're running and I, because it's a long time, right? You have a lot of thoughts that can go through your mind. You know, are, are you thinking about work? Are you thinking about the nature? Are you are you zen? Is it just everywhere? Yeah, I'm more I'm more of a zen. I, I no
1: headphones for me. Um, I'm not a headphone runner at all. I just kind of go out and just and kind of become one with the environment, if
2: you will.
0: Brian, Brian, do you listen to music when you run? It depends. I'm like a 50-50. I, so in a rate, in in, okay, so I run marathons too. If I'm going for time, I'm not going to wear headphones because I, I need to have full concentration. But if it was like a 12-hour race or an ultra, I might, you know, for a little bit of it, put on music. But I like talking to people on the trail too. Like you'll meet some really interesting people on the trail, you know, and just have good conversation. And then a lot of the time you're in your own kind of cave. So I would say maybe 50% or less, probably less than that, but some, some. That's interesting because I'm sure
2: you're familiar with the book Born to Run. Mm -hmm. I hope everyone is familiar with that. Yes, everybody's nodding. Um, And I think one of the the lines in there that I actually highlighted because it was like, you know, there's a difference between the people that shove in a pair of headphones and knock out, you know, and knock out a 5K so they can fit into the jeans they want to fit in. But there's something different about... The people that just go for these extended periods of time, and they think they have a – where they're not necessarily trying to get through it, they're doing it for the for the actual enjoyment of running. Because, it's it, Carl, I don't listen to music either. I don't even own a pair of headphones, you know, um, and that's one of the questions people are like, oh, well, what do you listen to? What keeps you occupied for
0: that long?
2: And I'm like, oh, no, I don't listen to anything. I just – I'm just one with the world.
0: <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta say, that like, so there are some people, some ultra runners and like ultra endurance athletes. I've heard them like they play the same song for 24 hours on repeat. Like, like I, I, you know, you know, David Goggins. I think he even said like he was doing a push-up competition for that long, and he just had the same song on repeat. Like, that <laughs> sounds even like nuttier to me. To that's, that. that's
1: torture. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It has to be. I can't imagine. I, don't, I can't think of one song that I love that much.
0: <laughs> I think you won't love it by the end of that. <laughs> yeah,
2: right. <laughs> all right. Well, all right. So I mentioned kind of how I thought, you know, uh, being uh, an ultra runner or running this extended period of time, there's, there's times of it that sucks. Um, that's what I've always found. And maybe you guys haven't found the same thing. Maybe you're Zen the whole way, but I found, you know, for the most part I do pretty good, but I always find there's some point I find, you know, where it's usually between 30 and 35 miles because I've only run, a, I don't run much further than that, um, where, I, where it just, I just hate myself for signing up for this thing. And I hate the fact that I've run this far and now I'm not even going to be able to finish because I'm, you know, I've, I've psyched myself out and everything. And, but then I know if I can just push through. So I always just find some minor goal right ahead. I go, okay, I can, maybe I can't finish, but I can run past that bush maybe i can't finish after that bush but i'll run to the next pole well if i can do that i can do this next uphill and i just keep giving myself these little and then after that after i do that for a little bit i hit i do i finally find my zen and then like i feel like i can run a thousand miles and so i found a little bit for myself in trading that you know i take losses part of trading as a trader you know you buy you know i i have a uh, 67 percent win rate which i'm very proud of but that means one out of every three trades loses me money and you know and that's not fun but i understand it's part of the process and i think having that mental fortitude from you know from being a runner uh to be able to push through the times that suck helps me to you know get through to the times that are good all right i've been stealing all of your airtime carl I know, you, <laughs> I know you i know i i think it even it even mentioned in your profile on trail ridge financial that you are a trail runner how, do, how does that relate to your uh your financial advice your financial outlook on uh on the world
1: well i think i think one of the things you learn about um you know ultra running is i mean there's several life lessons in there um Uh, but you know, one one thing is is having optimism in the face of just completely absurd and improbable challenges that are in front of you. You know, being 65 miles into a race and being being at a point where you're like,
0: oh crap,
1: I have 35 more (laughs) miles (laughs) to go on 65. You're like, how am I ever going to do this? So learning how to be optimistic. Um, but I think probably one of the bigger ones that is, I think, more relevant. And I think in the context of trading or investing in sort of paying attention to what's happening in the market is just because you can, doesn't always mean that you should. Um, and so like really having the perspective of not how bad you're feeling right now or how good you're feeling right now. Um, but really having the perspective of, you know, this is all going to pass, you know, and an ultra marathon is something that you know, you're going to feel really amazing. I mean, like I've had some of my most amazing running experiences after 70 miles in a race. I mean, just completely surreal experiences, just cranking out nine minute miles and trail. I was 70 miles and it's dark and you're having the best time of your life. Ever. You know, it's like, it's like the previous 15 hours didn't even happen. Um, you know, and that's pretty incredible and have the lowest lows and uh, being, being depressed and, knowing that that cycle kind of repeats itself. And I think that's true in the markets. You know, there's going to be periods of time where uh, the markets are, uh, I mean, well, the markets are probably always irrational. Yes, I agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) There are going to be periods of time where the market is maybe more euphoric um, and trying to find that balance of not chasing after something that maybe, you know, you shouldn't, that you might end up getting burnt on. Uh, And simultaneously, um, the market gets uh, sometimes, uh, you know, kind of down on itself and gets irrational to the downside and, uh, you know, kind of fear and cataclysm runs through. And so far this year, I think we've experienced both of those uh, ends of the spectrum. Uh, So one of the things you talk about is, you know, um, how you think about investing and trading and planning. Not just for the current environment, but how you do that through an entire market cycle, how you do that through an entire economic cycle, how you do that through a life cycle. Um, you know, when you think about your career, life, family, you know, all the things that happen, and and you know, embracing the idea that the only thing we're certain about is that the future is uncertain, um, and really just trying to build plans around that that you know help deliver some of the consistent results that each person needs to feel like they're going to have confidence to do what they want to do because nobody really wants to like have to depend on the market going up 30% to feel good about retiring. Yes.
2: Um, and that
1: that shouldn't be the criteria
2: by which people retire.
1: Um, you know, so that's you men- mine. I go
2: ahead. I to say you mentioned uncertainty. I just finished the book, black Swan phenomenal yeah. book. Very well. Have you yeah. read that?
1: Yes, I've read it. I've read it.
2: So what talk a little bit about uncertainty, because that was one of the, you know, even it, it, it gave me, I guess, more insight, even to the way they're reporting about the coronavirus right now. There's so much uncertainty out there, but every headline I read always wants to, you know, portray some amount of certainty. One of the headlines that, um, that I read recently was, you know, children under 12 show no, no evidence to support that children under 12 can transfer coronavirus to other people or to adults and i go well no evidence to support is not is not the same as evidence supporting that they can't
1: or or just it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen it just means there's no evidence <laughs>
2: they, just mean they can't find it right and i <laughs> and i've given some of my viewers the old uh, or the adage i always say you know if you flip a coin three times and you get heads three times that doesn't mean this coin can't land on tails it just means it hasn't landed on tails
1: um, so now, if now if a coin's been flipped 99 times and uh, 99 times it's been heads, I'm going to put all my money on the hundredth time. That's going to be heads.
2: Yes, absolutely. I'm with you there too. <laughs> um, so, how do you how do you condition your? Because I know everyone, and I think everyone wants to come to the market when they find either a financial planner or you know a stock guru. They want certainty. And how do you condition your 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 customers, your clients? To know that, like, what what types of conversations might you have with them to explain that nothing's certain, that we're dealing with uncertainty?
1: Well, I think, A, having this, you know, talking about what's, you know, what's going to happen. I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, and, you know, we can talk about any headline you want to talk about. And the way our media and the way our culture has kind of evolved is all of our conversations become very binary. Um, You know, and you can go run down, uh, you know, losing AAA, you know, our our, our AAA credit rating, you know, that was going to be the end of everything. Brexit was going to be the end of everything. You know, there are all these things that become uh, these huge win-losses where we get so focused on everything, um, but at the end of the day, they don't really matter. Um, And so, you know, I think, but, you know, you don't have to have uncertainty. I mean, you can go to a bank and you can get a CD, or you can buy U.S. treasuries, and you can do that. Um, But what... Historically, it has given you the above-average market returns. Is your ability and willingness to uh, accept uncertainty, and the more uncertainty and the more variability you're willing to incorporate, you know, the more potential you have for uh, what your long-term average rate, you know, rate of return is going. But it is not a straight line. You know, it is. You know, we people talk about you know 10 percent. Uh, you know average rate of return going back to the Great Depression, but there's periods of time there where you've got significantly negative, single digit returns, positive returns, but you have a year like last year where, you know, S&P is up over 30%, you know, that does a lot to m- mitigate out and manage, manage the averages, so, you know, and, and part of the uncertainty though too requires some special planning as well, because just because the long term average of it is a 10% rate of return, doesn't mean that that's what your rate of return is. Right? That makes sense. You don't. You don't. I mean, from 1983 to 1999 was the you know largest you know last 18 year period of the stock market. Um, so if you uh, so that did a lot to have a huge influence on average. If you were retiring in 1973, your retirement outlook was completely different in terms of the
2: asset value. So, the 2000 was what? The lost decade, right? The first uh, decade of the 2000s.
1: Well, and again, though, that, <laughs> and that part comes into how you plan and deal with that. And that lost decade was only if you invested in the S&P 500. Ah. You had a diversified portfolio, you were invested in bond, you're invested in uh, international, uh, and you rebalanced and you managed your funds accordingly to your risk profile. Um, a lot of people actually had very positive results it was just that one individual asset class where people were looking at S&P 500 from this point to this point you yeah, to earned zero but not nah, that, that wasn't that's not that's only S&P 500 is only one market
2: so um, what you you mentioned earlier you talked about some of the products that you might offer can you talk a little bit about the products i mean obviously we're, we're more myself personally i'm very focused on stocks because i love stocks and mm-hmm. i think they're fascinating i'm familiar with ETFs although i don't really trade them although my retirement account i do Manage my own IRA by buying VTI, which is just the all market fund, because random mm-hmm. walk down Wall Street said that's your best bet long term. And it kind of um, you know, but my trading account is very separate from that too, where I have, you know, I do I put aside, you know, what, the maximum of six thousand dollars a year into my IRA and I just buy VTI. Um you know, I've traded in crypto. You mentioned bonds. What type of products do you have? Do you have cryptocurrency products for your customers, um, or is it is it are you more looking at bonds and stocks? What what types of products are you are you steering your clients towards, or do you like?
1: So we so as as a rule, I don't like steer clients towards products. You know, and I think a lot of you know. So when we talk, so if it, uh, you know, so our what I'll do is I'll help provide clients provide advice on different uh, aspects of you know managing their finances. So that could be a refinance. You know I don't do a refinance, but I work with my clients and help them optimize and refinancing strategies and we'll work with um, you know their mortgage lenders and other things like that to have things tailored to their um, specific plan. We'll review people's insurance. Um, we can do people's life insurance or disability insurance or long-term care insurance. Uh, working with people, or people can go off to their own agent and do that. But we'll go through what they have. Essentially, what we do is we run a lab test. You know, we say, what do you want to have happen if X, Y, or Z happens, if uncertainty happens in your life, if you get sick, or if someone in your family dies, what do you want to have happen? And then we just run what they have and give them a comparison and say, well, this is what actually will happen. How do you feel about that? And then, you know, so they have the information to be able to uh, make a choice about how they want to proceed. When it comes to investments, you know, uh, I don't uh, do commission based products, at least in terms of um, individual, uh, you know, in uh, in terms of like managed portfolios as a whole. There are some specific types of products that go in that are only sold on a commission basis, um, and those tend to be more on uh, some of the more specialty alternative investment class assets, and so those tend to be a small. Sliver of an overall portfolio, but generally, what we're looking at is how we're managing the entire piece, and you know, as a whole, and how things get get uh, leveraged. Um, typically, when we're working with people um, doing wealth management or managed accounts, um, we're working on a. Uh, if someone chooses to hire me, I charge on a, a percentage of assets basis, or we use other platforms that do a percentage of asset basis, and there's any number of different options. There are managers that offer stock, individual stocks. There's managers that do ETF only, there's managers that do both, you know, and so a lot of it comes down to what you're looking for in terms of cost, what you're looking for in terms of strategy, um, and what you're looking for in terms of risk management um, in terms of uh, how that can, that's the great part about what I love. And also one of the things I really enjoy about where I'm at right now, independently is I don't have any proprietary products. My broker-dealer doesn't have any proprietary products. So, you know, we just work with solutions and helping people be able to choose kind of what's in the toolbox and try to connect them to the different resources that might be available.
2: So you mentioned some things like a refi, refinance on, uh, that was a mortgage, right? Or even uh, Mm -hmm. life insurance. Can you give me an example of like a maybe a portfolio that you might recommend to somebody? I'm not necessarily looking for direct advice, but just so we have a better understanding of exactly what you might, uh, you know, if somebody comes in and, you know, they have a certain amount of cash and they want to start a business. Let's say I have, you know, let's say I make $50,000 a year and I've got $20,000 set aside and I want to start a business. Is there a, a path forward that you might recommend to me? Or, and I know I'm talking very vague and you can ask me more detailed yeah. questions to get to what you need to. I guess I'm just trying to kind of get to like what, what types of uh, real advice somebody might receive from you from coming in uh, and, and having you as their financial advisor.
1: Well, so, I mean, you know, I think, you know, again, that's where every every individual person's going to be different. So in that person that's opening the business, you know, one of the things you want to talk about is, well, is this just, is this a side hustle? Uh, is this going to be uh, a new career? Um, new career,
2: absolutely yeah, new career.
1: <laughs> yeah, so then you talk about all the things that you do and, you know, if they're married, you know, what. You know, what are the income and benefits and, you know, how you account for all those individual costs. Uh, Also look at asset protection, like how um, the risk that you're taking on the business, how you insulate it from the rest of your personal assets. Um, so that you're not, uh, um, so, so
0: Car- Carl, just out of curiosity, just started to interrupt. So are you doing kind of do like, a planning type stuff? Like, you know, ty- try to manage taxation and that sort of thing as well. So we look at that. I'm not an accountant
1: and I'm not an attorney. Uh, so mm-hmm. I work with people, CPAs or, or attorneys in terms of looking at that. But yeah, we also do estate planning. Um, and in terms of tax planning, it, that's a big part of everything too, is, you know, one is, does it make sense where you are to pay more taxes now? So you pay less taxes later. Or does it make sense to maximize your deductions now? Um, the, the cost that people don't always take into full account is if you get tax breaks now, it means you end up paying more taxes later. So starting to think about where your income levels are going to be at different points in time to optimize that tax, kind of that overall tax strategy is work that we'll do and then bring in the accountant and consult with them to kind of build that, that strategy as part of their overall investment returns.
2: All right. So I I do think that's interesting and I, for you as a financial advisor. We're really coming in and saying, okay, where are your expenses on insurance? What are you gaining from that insurance? Yep. Um, and same thing with refinancing your house, you know, because the house is a lot of times most people's, a lot of people's biggest asset. Um, I think one thing I, I did catch earlier, you said you've worked with even school teachers. And so you, and I'm assuming um, maybe some higher net worth people, but obviously from what I know about school teachers is they're not typically the most high net worth people. What types of uh, advice or maybe not net worth, but not the highest income, right? Usually the teachers are, you know, more on the, on the middle to lower class from uh, Unfortunately. In terms of this, in this pay scale. And I'm not, yeah, I'm not trying to get into a political discussion mm-hmm. here, but I know that, you know, usually the, you know a lot of engineers and and bankers make more than you know the average teacher. What types of uh, advice do you have maybe for people on the uh, in the teacher realm of things that might have a lower income? Well,
1: well, so here's here's the one thing that i would I would disagree with sort of the underlying assumption. Yes that well yeah. wealth, I don't think, is dictated by income or total assets. Um, wealth is dictated by uh, your lifestyle relative to your means. Um, and the people who live the most, but most below their means, I would argue, are more wealthy. Um, I have, uh, you know, clients that, uh, you know, certainly have what you would think of in terms of large, seven-figure, you know, accounts that, you know, but also spend a lot of money. Um, and the val- the true value in terms of what that large amount of money that 99% of the people in the world would look at and say, "Oh, these people are really wealthy," and certainly there are have the ability to afford a lot of different things that other people might not. but Because they're so used to spending on a certain level, they're really put in a conundrum in terms of do they work for a much longer time period or do they have to, or they do in often cases, have to significantly redefine their lifestyle so that they can you know live within their means. Uh, the experience that I've had working with people who have been in, uh, You know, public service. You know, state, city, teachers, name it. That might not necessarily be the uh, highest income jobs. Is um, they tend to actually be really good at managing their money. Most at least the people who walk in my door. So right, you know, I I might have a a little bit more uh, of a um, selective group or a self-selecting group. But you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to. Do you set aside, do you spend every dollar that you make or do you prioritize your life in such a way that you're making sure that you set aside money um, and you're taking that money and being committed to investing that and get, taking advantage of time value of money so that you start getting compounding returns and geometric returns really makes a huge difference over the long term.
0: So, Carl, can I, can I ask you a question? And I come from a legal background. So this is a little bit maybe of a pivot from what Michael's been chatting about. So, So lawyers they have a duty of confidentiality to their clients. Yeah. And I don't know if uh, financial planners have the same duty or not, but so if, say for instance, someone's like, you know, I come to your office, like, yeah, you know, I really haven't been paying taxes, you know, the, maybe the right amount for the last few years, or oh, I, I kind of mix up my income, you know, in a way that might not be the most legal. Uh, well, do you have a duty to report these people? Or are you, are you allowed to operate with these kind of clients? Or do you have to reject them? Do you know, is there an industry standard on this point?
1: Uh, So I am not like an attorney that you do not have a a financial advisor client privilege. Okay. Um, (laughs) So we can't come to Carl (laughs) to help me launder money. Thank you for for clearing that up. Absolutely (laughs) not. uh, There are many, many regs on on, uh, that. But yes, we do uh, client confidentiality, dealing with people's finances. That's a huge part of the work that we do in terms of securing people's information and also dealing with identity theft and other things.
0: But you, you wouldn't be required to report this person to the police would you That's not part of uh, your job requirement <laughs>
1: Well, there, there's always the ethical requirement, right? You know, I, I certainly I'm not.
0: Uh, I, I'm not saying I, that you should assist these people in, in committing crimes. I know that's different. I'm wondering I, if I, Brian had to advise not anybody this is not,
1: to do that.
0: I'm not, this is not. This does not apply for me, just for everyone listening. <laughs> this is just kind of, you know, an interesting question that I, I'm curious I about. I feel like, Brian, if
2: this podcast really takes off like I expect, you're definitely going to be investigated by the IRS.
0: I'm honest. <laughs> I'm an honest man here. I'm a state employee. I
1: will, I will just say definitively, it's not, I would not, um, uh, I, if somebody had not paid their taxes and people do not pay their taxes, my advice to them before we began working together would be that you need to go get your, get your affairs in order and work with a, a tax, advisor, tax, you know, tax accountant. you know, like for example, I had um, uh, um, a, a person who was actually disabled. And as a result of their disability, they just had never got around to filing their taxes. Somebody told them that they didn't need to. And so they went several years without filing their taxes. I was like, well, that's not true. <laughs> 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 you need to get that taken care of. And they didn't actually, when they did do, do that and completed that process, they actually got refunds uh, because the IRS was holding on to money from their withholdings. Uh, so they actually, the government was able to give them their money back as a result of uh, filing their taxes. But yeah you need to make sure you're uh, law abiding and we're not enabling or doing anything in terms of money laundering or anything else <laughs> like that. that. That stuff is, uh, those are big no-no's and we are not a uh, uh, venues for that.
0: For
2: sure, for sure. <laughs> um, well, I, I think we've really covered a lot of ground here today. I think it was, it was really interesting. I love the fact that you kind of, even at the end there, I was like pressing you. like, What are these poor people gonna do? Yeah, like, no. Is poor doesn't matter by your income, and I think you're right. I've known people that are making six figures a year, but they're they're in debt to their eyeballs, and they couldn't stop tomorrow if they wanted to because they have so much debt. They have so many obligations. Um, so I, I I think that was a great point. I really appreciate you making there's, that. that was, there's a great book. If
1: it's it's uh, older than I'd like to admit right now, but it's uh, uh, called The Millionaire Next
0: Door. I actually have that on my um, bookshelf right next to me. <laughs> do you? I, we, were you required, we were required to read it in high school. Actually, I, I can't okay. believe it. we had a class that we were, had to read it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's
1: a great book, and they just talk about sort of the blue collar mentality of you know people who ultimately become millionaires, and um, you know it, it's kind of antiquated at this point. But I remember one of the stories uh, that was in there. The most commonly held credit card of people they identified as millionaires um you know this do you know this michael
2: i i this is one of the few books i've not read i this oh, i can loan you my copy. <laughs> all right please do actually please do
1: yeah so it was a sears credit card you know people would think american express or other things like that but they had it's sears because they saw value in it
0: yeah and it, so
1: the whole book was done like kind of on a sociological basis on the um it's really more about the behavior and not spending money than it is about the big money and the income and, and kind of the power of what you can accomplish over the long term if you stay, s- stay simple and well well managed in your expectations of yourself.
0: It's an interesting book because it is dated. So it's like, what kind of cars do rich people drive? You know, and, and to your point, the Sears credit card and like, yeah. you know, and like what kind of things in like the early 90s did people, con- were they concerned about? Like, oh, is China going to take us over? You know, other, it's very interesting, you know. Yep perspectives on the book. I there's other one it's like uh, rich dad poor dad is another famous one. I have read
2: of. that one. That one I and I was I was, comp, I was about to kind of compare that because he talks about buying um, buying assets versus buying liabilities. Where an expensive car at the end of the day is a liability. Even your own yeah. personal house is a liability. But buying a rental property that's an asset. Yeah. So, all right. Well, all right. So I mentioned I'm, I'm going to link to all this in the show notes. So if you're listening, please do uh you know if you any of these books interest you black swan i just finished uh, a random walk down wall street i believe i mentioned briefly there i'll have a link to that one as well the millionaire next door i i will read i need to read that one that's gonna be added i wasn't sure what my next financial book i was gonna read i'm reading AWOL on the uh, appalachian trail right now so i need to i try to read a just for fun book and then a financial book i try to go back and forth so uh, I just finished black swan. Now I'm doing a on the Appalachian trail. So I'm going to switch back and do no Next store next. So, awesome. I gained, a, uh, I gained a lot out of this, uh, this podcast today. Uh, and we'll also go ahead and link to rich dad, poor dad, since I mentioned it. Uh, so yeah, any, uh, I, I don't want to, I, I think we've, do you have anything else you want to leave us with today, Carl? What any, any final thoughts that um, that you didn't get to cover that you wanted to mention?
1: No, I mean, I enjoyed the conversation. You know, it's, uh, it's always good being able to, you know, kind of talk back and forth about, you know, different ideas and um, you know different things. So I appreciate uh, the time and opportunity to chat. We even got to talk about some running at the same time. So that's, uh, that's a big win as well.
2: All right, Brian.
0: I'm going to turn it over to you. I, you're itching. I can see. Oh, it. I, I have like I have like two questions. So I, I think <laughs> I, have, I have a more serious question. And we can talk about that. Or and I have a fun question. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how it goes
1: after that last
0: question. <laughs> so, so, so which which order do you want to go in? The fun or the serious? I'll let you decide, uh, Michael. Or are you, Carl, go ahead. <laughs> are we? Is it one or the other? Or do, we we can, do we? can both? do. We can do
2: both. We can do. We're both. Gonna, No, we need to do both. I think he's saying, do you want to do? The, you want to start
0: with serious?
1: Let's do serious first, and then end it on fun.
0: Okay, All right, I, I like okay. that. Okay, so serious question. Uh, so I, I guess kind of this was in the news recently to us. There is a, um, Robinhood got a little bit of bad press, and, and there's kind of a terrible story. There was this a young trader named Alex Kearns. And I don't know if you heard the story, but he was, mm-hmm. he was trading options on, on Robinhood. Um, and he, I guess he had, you know, he had some depression issues as well, but he saw a very large negative balance due to some of his options trading um, in the UI. But um, he ended up committing suicide and um, Robinhood put a post about this and it made, you know, kind of national headlines here. I guess, what, what is your take on that? Do you, do you think Robinhood, you know, has any fault there? Is this, uh, is this just a depression issue? Is this, um, you know, a combination of factors? Um, do you have any perspective or thoughts on that? Do they have any liability there? Should, you know, what should Robinhood be doing here?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, it's obviously a terrible situation across the board. And I think, and I haven't followed it super closely, but didn't it also end up being like, he actually didn't even lose that much.
0: That's correct. So it, was a, it was just,
1: it was just a matter of it, the money settling. If he had hung, waited for two or three more days, it wouldn't have been nearly as cataclysmic.
0: Yeah. That's why the thing is like, it was a UI, you know, it shows a negative account balance of like negative over $700,000 in, in the red. Right. But yeah. actually if you'd had taken a, you know, yeah, a day or two, it would have shown perfectly. Okay.
1: Yeah. I think, I think it's, uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, part of that in terms of the way those the user interfaces are reported are you know, driven by regulatory, you know, issues, you know, so in terms of, uh, you know, and some of these things exist, you know, and that's always the catch 22. You know, a lot of the rules that exist today in the industry are byproducts of the Great Depression in terms of, you know, Securities Act 1933, Investment Advisors Act in 1940, which were rules that were created in response to all the uh, what everybody went through as a result of the Great Depression, and so that's why we you get prospectuses in the mail and you have disclosure and there's all of these different things that are out there that are intended to empower, you know, people to have information and be aware of what's going on. Um, the challenge, of course, then right in in our you know tech, technology world is the more we try to simplify things, the more then there's more things behind the veiled curtain and then you kind of end up in that cycle again where things go you know disclosure is obviously really really important um but it is overwhelming i mean to try to keep track of and certainly i talking to my clients on a regular basis it's you know very few people actually go through and read a prospectus or you know when they get them or, or keep up with it and understand everything that's going on um, but, you know, it is sort of a, a warning, too, also, that, you know, the especially when you start dealing with options, which, you know, you start talking about things that are some of the more complicated vehicles um, that are out there, is, is there are things that can happen that can go um, not in the way you thought they would, you know? And so it's, uh, you know, as we kind of deal with these euphoria and this technology and this access... Um, being aware of what you're doing is—is is there is a little bit, there is certainly risk, right? We talk about risk that's out there. Um, so I don't know what the, the magic solution is in terms of um, you know what's out there, but um, it's definitely uh, definitely a warning and a very sad example of uh, what people you know, how people should be careful and thoughtful about the things that they're doing.
2: Can I jump in here? I have I'm, I'm a very I have a very strong opinion on this particular case. I think Robinhood, as a whole, you know, they do. I would, they, 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 almost prey on, but they—they're advertising directly to people with no experience in the market. They're trying to get people to have their first trade with Mm -hmm. Robinhood, and so they know that the people are coming in. And this is not necessarily a legal standpoint, but it's more of an ethical standpoint. They know the people that are coming in have no idea what they're doing. They are purposely advertising and recruiting those people to trade on their platform. And when they allow a negative, you know, from having a, I think it was a one or $2,000 account to somehow show a negative $750,000 balance without a clear explanation of what that balance actually means at that time, I believe they are ethically obligated to provide some level of, uh, of, of, of transparency and explanation of what that number actually means. So. I understand that Alex, uh, that the young man that, that did pass away as a result of this, I think it's it's tragic. It's awful. Um, you know, it would be great if people, you know, understood more what they're doing, but when you, when the, when the threshold to get in is so incredibly low, you know, I think it was, right. It was only a few thousand dollars that the, that the kid had invested and, and then to be able to see such a horrible, like just such a you know, devastating number. I don't know what I would do if I was in debt $750,000 <laughs> all of a sudden. You know, that's a, that's yeah. a big number. Um, so I, I think Robinhood has maybe, maybe not a legal responsibility, but I think they have a huge ethical responsibility for if they're going to bring in the people that know nothing about what they're doing, they have an ethical responsibility to explain what these numbers mean. And if they can't do that, and if there's no great way to do that, um, then they, they, they should steer clear. You know, I think when they started, when it was just buying and selling stocks, and you know, you could lose your, you know, you go in with your $2,000, and you lose your $2,000, and that's where it is, I could understand that, and I'm fine with that. I go, okay, you know what? The lottery and the roulette tables and the blackjack tables do that every single day. I understand that people are going to go and gamble that want to gamble, but when, when you have the potential – to show something so, you know, such a negative number, such a horrible number that can be so devastating to somebody's life, I do think it's, I think they have an ethical responsibility to, to really make sure that person understands what, what that number means and what they are actually looking at there. So that's, that's, that's my take on it.
0: It's a, it's a very fair take. And I appreciate both of your perspectives on the question. I know it's a difficult question. Maybe on the more positive note, we did talk about running, so I would just say maybe a happier note, but can you maybe give me your happiest trail experience and the best food you've ever eaten at an aid station
1: best food i've ever eaten at an aid station i mean that i don't know those are those are euphoric experiences in and of themselves (laughs) like every every time um uh you know um geez i i don't eat a lot actually at aid station oh really a lot of times a lot of times i might be a take some watermelon, dip it in some salt. Um, I'll take shots of pickle juice. Um, I'll eat a few potato chips, um, you know, in terms of what's there, but I tend not to eat a lot of food. I had some pierogies at a race recently that were really, really good. Um, they were, uh, they were good, but yeah, it's, uh, um, it's more just the euphoria of seeing people
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're alone for so long right you get to this <laughs> it's like the you know yeah mean, but it's funny but like at uh, the Umstead
1: 100 I mean you know they've got short ribs burgers you know they got so many like great foods and like you get excited for it and it's like um, by by the time you're running in there it's not oh I know what it is it's ices and snow cones you know those flavor ice things you know the like, oh that <laughs> that where you just rip off the top and it's yeah. just like frozen sugar water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on a hot day, I had a race that uh, that's going to be my best aid station food. It was like 90 degrees, 100% humidity. And every aid station I was like, give me three flavor ice and I would just like drain those as I was like running in between aid stations along with my end and water. And like that. So, yeah. Ice <laughs> on a hot day, you can't go wrong with that.
2: No, for sure. <laughs> oh, I'd have to say for my most I was running, um, this was actually years ago, one of my favorite running experiences. Um, I was just out in the greenway here in Cary by myself on a Saturday morning. Um, it was before coronavirus, so I had the greenway to myself. And this hawk came out with this eight-foot wingspan and flew on the trail right above me and with me for probably 15 seconds total. But it was just one of the coolest, you know, I might not have even noticed him if I had had headphones in, you know, yeah. but it was just that moment where I came on this, this straight stretch and this hawk came down and flew with me for a minute and then he just took off. And I was like, I don't know what it was about that moment, but it still obviously it popped right into yeah. my head. It was just that we were just there together. Like me and him were just, you know, just, just doing what we were doing. He was flying. I was yeah. running, like doing what we were meant to do. And then uh, awesome. best food ever is, is gummy bears. I had those at an aid station one time, and that has been – that is my jam ever since. I don't go <laughs> on a run that's more than 10 miles without gummy bears with me now. I, they just – I can get them down really easy, and they seem to give me uh, enough energy to keep going. So, there you go. So, yeah, like Brian, it. this this question has to come back to you. What is – give me your most euphoric experience and your favorite, favorite uh, aid station food. So,
0: I'll just – I'm going to echo a little bit of Carl's point. So like, to me, food never tastes as good until you're like really, really hungry and you're running or like immediately after you're done running like food and water, like water tastes amazing on that hot day. You will never have better tasting water in your life. If you, if you are out there running and you're dehydrated, but so, I think that's one of the beauty of ultra running. Like unlike marathons where it's like, Oh, I got to eat gels at mile five and do it exactly this planning. It's just, what do I feel like eating when I get to this aid station, you know, it's this buffet right there, <laughs> but uh, you also kind of got to listen to your stomach. Cause you're carrying that food with you <laughs> in your stomach yeah. when you're running. So, um, so they, you, it's a little love, hate relationship, but uh, I just remember one, one race, they had spicy chicken sandwiches kind of cut up really n- finely. That was pretty good. Um, and I've had some good pizza out there. I would say best trail experience. I would say, I did my one 100 mile or the Umstead 100 and they let you have a pacer out there after mile 50. So you could bring a friend out there. And there was a guy that ran with me for basically two loops. So it was 24 miles. It was the slowest 12. I was, I was going like 18 to 20 minutes a mile. So he was out there for a real long time with me (laughs) for those two loops. And, John, if you're listening to this, I, I, we talked about probably every possible thing and me complaining for about, you know, a solid, you know, more than four hours, a lot longer than that. And uh, I just really appreciate that moment. So it was a good time to bond, yeah. but it was a good time to also just, you know, like, see what the human body is capable of, you know, it, it, uh, kind of embrace the suck, as they say. <laughs> and so I think... <laughs> Oh, go ahead, Carl. That, that's awesome. I
1: realized I just got hung up on the food. Surprise, surprise. I didn't share my trail. Oh experience. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you, have, you have a lot. So go give
0: it. <laughs> so I was just going to say, probably my
1: best trail experience was I did uh, I did a hundred k in Hong Kong. Did the Hong Kong hundred k? Oh yeah, I've, um, I've seen videos.
0: This is this looks so cool.
1: Yeah, I actually I actually didn't finish. It was uh, I got uh, jet lag and um, you know it's in January, so like the week before it was running here, it was like thirty two degrees and like out there running on the South China Sea as like 88 and humid. But, um, so it was just incredible just being in that you're running through these small little villages and like it was the first time in Hong Kong, which is obviously this really densely populated area, but then you have these pristine natural areas where you're running on the outside of the island, looking out over the uh, South Pacific, you're actually can see mainly in China. Um, and you're just kind of, you know, cruising along, you know, past some chair, there's part where there were bulls on the trail. Um, so like, you're just kind of like giving them birth, like while you're like, you know, running around. <laughs> but as I said, my day kind of unfolded the heat and just the, the 14 hour time difference, everything else like that got better of me. So at this one spot, I just ended up like, I found this rock about like, five feet off the trail that was just on this cliff overlooking a bay, And there were people out like, windsurfing. I just like chilled out there for like 15 minutes. I was like, I'm in Hong Kong. I'm like, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Like this is an amazing view. I'm not going to finish the race, but like this is a, just a great place to chill out and hang out.
0: So, so, so my wife is from mainland China and uh, her, her, her my, my mother-in-law lived in Guangzhou which is right across from Hong Kong so I've been to Hong Kong a few times and I I've always wanted to run in, internationally because I've only kind of run in the United States and so I, I actually have been looking at that race and it, it looks it's no joke that's a real you know that's a true ultra and there's some 18,000 18,
1: feet of climb and, uh, and over a hundred kilometers
0: yeah yeah um, and it, it just impresses me. They get a pretty good international crowd and they get a lot of, there's a really good China, good China ultra scene. And it's kind of funny. I, it, just <laughs> your your numbers,
1: Chinese ultra runners are like taking over the ultra running world. It's that. So yeah, we were talking about it before, but my big goal is to do UTMB, um, oh, yeah. which is uh, ultra trail to Mont Blanc, which that's, is a hundred and five mile race that runs around uh, Mont Blanc in France and uh, Switzerland and uh, uh, Italy. Um, uh, but you got to qualify and do all this other stuff. So I've been in the lottery twice. So if I finish this race in Georgia in September, I'll have my entry. And COVID willing, next year <laughs> we'll uh, have the opportunity to run it. So we'll see how that goes. Oh. That's sort of my big, uh, big sort of multi-year goal that I've been working towards
2: for a while.
0: Well, best of luck to that. Yeah, should be uh, should be good.
2: All right. Well, have we covered everything then? I think that's it. Um, Carl, do you want to give us any contact information? Are you on social media or your website, anywhere where people might be able to find you if they, uh, if they want to get in contact with you?
1: Yeah, probably the best, uh, best way to find us would be is if you went to uh, www.trailridgefinancial. You can uh, request an email. I'm Carl at Trailridgefinancial, so K A R L, Carl with a K at trailridgefinancial.com. Uh, Can shoot me an email and uh, can uh, connect. And always happy to have a conversation. Um, I'm not licensed in all fifty states. This is a podcast going out, so depending on which state you're in, I may or may not be able to uh, help you. But
2: we're going to attract an international audience, so they call you like, "How should I? How does this legal term work in uh, in Venezuela?" You know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No. No. No help here. No help here. That is
1: outside my field of expertise so um, but it's great No, I, this has been a, a lot of fun enjoyed the opportunity
2: to uh, have the conversations with you well thanks for joining us today Carl I really do appreciate it
0: so thank you for listening uh, for, for, for trading for
2: keeps this is Brian and this is Michael uh, be safe out there we'll, we'll talk to you again next time alright goodbye bye <laughs>